The following is a paid program. This program is not an offer to sell securities or insurance products, which may be discussed herein. Any product guarantees are based on the financial strength and claims-paying ability of the issuing company. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. Daniel Goodman here, your host for Keeping Things Simple, a financial talk show aimed to simplify the seemingly complicated and complex. Got a terrific show lined up for today, this Memorial Day weekend. We're going to be talking about VIX, not the cough drops, Monte Carlo, not as in the kingdom of Monaco, ludic fallacy, there's no confusing this one, and black swan theory. Maybe just a bit of confusion here since it continues to evolve. And a whole lot more, including, time permitting, short excerpt from Ivan Simonoff's interview with Nick Murray in this month's May edition of Financial Advisor magazine. But first, in recognition that this is Memorial Day weekend, I want to start off with a beautiful poem I came across written by a Coast Guard pilot fellow named Kelly Strong, who wrote this poem back in 1981 while a high school senior JROTC cadet at Homestead High in Homestead, Florida. The poem is a tribute to his father, a career Marine who served two tours in Vietnam. And the poem is called, Freedom is Not Free. Freedom is Not Free. I watched the flag pass by one day. It fluttered in the breeze. A young Marine saluted it, and then he stood at ease. I looked at him in uniform, so young, so tall, so proud. He'd stand out in any crowd. I thought how many men like him had fallen through the years. How many died on foreign soil? How many mothers' tears? How many pilots' planes shot down? How many died at sea? How many foxholes were soldiers' graves? No, freedom isn't free. I heard the sound of taps one night when everything was still. I listened to the bugler play and felt a sudden chill. I wondered just how many times that taps had meant amen when a flag had draped a coffin of a brother or a friend. I thought of all the children, of the mothers and the wives, of fathers, sons, and husbands with interrupted lives. I thought about a graveyard at the bottom of the sea, of unmarked graves in Arlington. No, freedom isn't free. Our phone number here at the station is 866-584-3434. My sound engineer and show producer, Sean Ruge, standing ready to take any questions you might have regarding today's show. But if you prefer writing in, email is degfinancial at aol.com. Again, that's degfinancial at aol.com. If you missed a previous show and want to get caught up or check out other financial issues of interest, you can do so at DEG's newly redesigned website, degfinancial.com. where you'll find an audio copy of this show as well as previous shows. 
But before we get to today's show, it's time to celebrate today's Sunday, May 30th birthdays. DG wants to treat you and a guest to lunch or dinner at the restaurant of your choosing if today, May 30, happens to be your birthday. This offer is, however, limited to the first caller, so if today is your birthday, happy birthday, and give a call here to the station at 866-584-3434, and DEG will treat you and a guest to lunch or dinner at your favorite restaurant. Friday marked the end of a rough month on Wall Street, in which stocks plunged on worries about the European debt crisis. The weak euro and bets that the market advance had outpaced any economic recovery. So for the month, the Dow lost 7.9%, seeing its worst month since February 2009, when it fell 11.7%, and worst May since 1940. Wow, that's like 70 years ago, when it plunged 21.7%. The NASDAQ lost 8.3%, its worst month since November 2008, when it dropped 10.8%, and its worst May since 2000, when it skidded 11.9%. The S&P 500 declined 8.2%, its worst month since February 2009, when there was an 11% loss, and its worst May since 1962, when the drop was 8.6%. The CBOE Volatility VIX Index, which I'm going to talk about in just a moment, CBOE, that's the Chicago Board Options Exchange, VIX Index, or Wall Street's fear factor, rallied nearly 8% to 32.07. The U.S. stock fund average for the last week was up 1%, but year-to-date this average is flat at 0% for the one-year period, up 21.7%. But for the three-year term, it's negative 7%. Taking a look at the foreign stock fund average, it's up for the week 1.1%. Year-to-date, down 7.5%. For the one-year period, up 12.5%. And for the three-year time frame, down 9.5%. Finally, we have Vanguard 500 Index Fund. Down this last week, a fraction at 0.2%. One-fifth of one percent. Year-to-date, down one-and-a-half percent. For the one-year period, the fund is up 20.9 percent. And for the three-year term, down 8.7 percent. will be interesting to see what this coming week brings after the mixed market we experienced last week and the overall correction for the month of May. Now history as we transition into summer. Let's talk about VIX for a moment. Again, not the cough drops. VIX is the fear index that's been soaring as of late to 14-month high. As all major stock indexes have been plummeting on concerns about the European debt crisis, the CBOE, Volatility VIX Index, or the VIX, is a key measure of market expectations of near-term volatility conveyed by S&P 500 stock index option prices. Since its introduction in 1993, VIX has been considered by many to be the world's premier barometer of investor sentiment and market volatility. Just a few notes on the timeline of some key events in the history of the VIX. 
1993, that's uh, the VIX in index is introduced in a paper by Professor Robert E. Whaley of Duke University, 2004, on March 26, 2004, the first ever trading in futures on the VIX index began on the CBOE Futures Exchange, that's the CFE. And then in 2006, VIX options were launched in February of that year, 2006, and finally in 2009, there was a revised VIX white paper. Year to date, the VIX has risen 114%. It's up more than 73% over the past two weeks alone. Well, just five weeks ago, the VIX was at a three-year low. A VIX reading higher than 30 is considered a sign that investors are getting worried. But even as the last Thursday's highs, the VIX is still way below the peak level of almost 90 that it hit back in October 2008 after Lehman Brothers collapsed. Concerns about European debt have battered global stocks and spilled over into U.S. markets. The European Union and International Monetary Fund hammered out a $1 trillion European aid package, but that has failed to assuage worries. Some investors fear that even the massive bailout won't be enough to contain debt problems from spreading throughout Europe. Earlier this month, riots in Greece turned deadly with protesters enraged over severe new government austerity measures. Other countries, including Portugal and Spain, also announced budget cuts to avoid problems seen in debt-choked Greece, but investors worry that could hamper fra the fragile recovery. Those fears sent the euro spiraling to four-year low, which set off alarm bells for market investors. In case you've just tuned in, you're listening to Keeping Things Simple with Daniel Goodman here on Caseball 1510 this Memorial Day weekend. And what we're really trying to do here today on this next to the last day in May is figure out which way the markets are headed this summer, whether we're in for some sizzling hot summer action off the doldrums of this May sell-off, or whether we're in for a summer bummer, more see-you-later bear alligator selling. If you have an opinion regarding market direction for this summer, or you just want to share some odd bit of market trivia, like how the markets have fared overall during the summer months, our phone number here at the station is 866 584-3434. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, I'll share with you a strategy which will make you a winner either which way. Dependability and experience guaranteed. That's DEG Financial. Daniel E. Goodman, an investment advisor representative for DEG Advisory, a registered investment advisor, has been a leading force in the creation and protection of capital for business owners, professionals, and highly paid executives in Southern California for the past 21 years. Specializing in indexed annuities, the mission at DEG is to continuously provide that extra difference in helping you as a client. Call 818-907-0673. That's 818-907-0673. You got it. That's DEG. Dependability and experience guaranteed. We're back. Daniel Goodman here on Case Ball 1510 AM. And so far, we've been wrapping up the numbers for the not-so-very-merry month of May and understanding that year-to-date, we're pretty much flat, if not negative, on most of the indices. So what's an investor to do? First off, if you're in the market short-term, I can't help you. Your gambling guess is as good as mine or anybody else's. If you're in the markets long-term, then there's lots to do, keeping in mind 
the following 101 basics. Number one, adhere to Buffett's two rules for successful investing. We've been over this before. Rule number one, make sure you never lose. And rule number two, make sure you never, ever forget rule number one. Why? Because if we're never losing money, on occasion we're going to hit that double, triple, and home run play. So what happens is that net sum effect for never losing over time turns into one huge, gigantic win. Just because everyone else thinks they have to lose on occasion to get ahead doesn't mean that that's the preferred way of investing. It's not. Two, I've mentioned this many times, but it's especially apropos today, when the year-to-date numbers are negative and flat at best, yet the full one-year returns are still very impressive double digits. And this is, it's not what you make that counts, but what you keep. And finally, three, better to be approximately right than 100% wrong. The short answer to all the above is a quality indexed annuity with annual reset. It answers number one, that you won't lose. It answers number two, because you capture your gains with annual reset, making sure that you never have less than you, you had the year prior. And if the indices were down, you're calibrated and nicely positioned to reap future gains when the markets rebound and then capture those gains as they occur. And with respect to number three, well, if you're in this long term and your advisor knows his or her indexing onions, then you really have nothing whatsoever to worry about. Let's talk specifics for a moment about where things are headed long term in relationship to where we've been this past decade. Just in case there's any doubt about being approximately right versus 100% wrong, Folks, it's been 10 years since small cap indices have broken new highs, and we're still off roughly 50% since then. What does that tell you long-term? It's absolute insanity to be long-term and not properly equity allocated. Yet that's what's happening to too many individual investors who fled to cash in their long-term pension accounts when in 2008 the markets went falling off a cliff. Folks, cash is cash. One can't be, quote-unquote, invested in cash and expect to make money. We need cash to buy, and we get cash when we sell. But long-term, having too much allocated to cash is a huge mistake. Let's talk about Monte Carlo. No, I'm not talking about summer vacation over there in Monaco, though this might be nice as part of the plan once we've accumulated all this wealth. And hopefully the region of South France isn't too negatively affected by what's been going on as of late around the North Mediterranean shoreline from Greece to Spain. I see Sean is smiling. No, no. I'm talking about the Monte Carlo models that simulate all kinds of scenarios for investment portfolios. A better way to size up your nest egg. What will your portfolio be worth when you stop working? Financial planners usually answer the question by taking a current portfolio, making an estimate of future savings, and most important, plugging in a long-term rate of return on those assets. For instance, using historic data, a 10% return on a portfolio comprised of mainly stocks is a common assumption. Problem is, this widespread method relies on average returns. The flaw with using averages is that 9-11 isn't necessarily the emergency operator call we used to think of prior to the 9-11. 
after which we needed to rewrite the meaning of the word. Like Lake Erie never freezes and stock market returns don't fluctuate. Kind of like Black Swan Theory, which I'm going to touch upon in just a moment. Monte Carlo is a more sophisticated alternative that, for better or for worse, is here to stay. So we might as well avail ourselves. Using computer software or a web-based program, you can calculate the probability of achieving your goals through a Monte Carlo simulation. Monte Carlo is a mathematical model for computing the odds or probability of an outcome such as the value of your nest egg at retirement by testing thousands upon thousands of possible results. Monte Carlo simulations have been around for more than 60 years, but only with the advances in low-cost computing power have they expanded beyond the scientific community. When it comes to financial planning, a Monte Carlo simulation takes into account returns, volatility, correlations, and other factors, all based on historical statistical estimates. That's similar to the traditional financial planning approach. The important thing here to remember is that Monte Carlo is far from a certainty test. It's a probability test. What's more, thinking about probabilities isn't all that easy. What is the difference between a 65% and a 75% chance of achieving your retirement goals? Is 65% acceptable? Nonetheless, there's no way financial planning is going to go back to the old days before Monte Carlo. We have to reconcile this and understand the limitations involved, which leads us left to discuss the ludic fallacy. The ludic fallacy is a term coined by Nassim Nicholas Taleb in his 2007 book, The Black Swan. Ludic is from the Latin ludus, meaning play, game, sport, pastime. It is summarized as the misuse of games to model real-life situations. Talib explains the fallacy as, these are his words now, basing studies of chance on the narrow world of games and dice, end quote. It is a central argument in the book and a rebuttal of the predictive mathematical models used to predict the future, as well as an attack on the idea of applying naive and simplified statistical models in complex domains. According to Taleb, statistics only work in some domains like casinos, in which the odds are visible and defined. Nassim's argument centers on an idea that predictive models are based on platonified forms gravitating towards mathematical purity and failing to take some key ideas into account. That it is impossible to be in possession of all the information that very small unknown variations in the data could have a huge impact. That theories, models based on the empirical data are flawed as events that have not taken place before cannot be accounted for. So I have some examples the, uh, detailed in the book. Example of number one, the, the suspicious coin, where there are two people there's a Dr. John who is regarded as a man of science and logical thinking, and Fat Tony who is regarded as a man who lives by his wits. A third party asks them, assume a fair coin is flipped 99 times, and each time it comes up heads. What are the odds that the 100th flip 
would also come up heads. So Dr. John says that the odds are not affected by the previous outcomes, so the odds must still be 50-50. Fat Tony says that the odds of the coin coming up heads 99 times in a row are so low, less than 1 in 633 billion, 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 that the initial assumption that the coin had a 50-50 chance of coming up heads is most likely incorrect. The ludic fallacy here is to assume that in real life, the rules from the purely hypothetical model, where Dr. John is correct, apply. Would a reasonable person bet on, a, on black on a roulette table that has come up red 99 times in a row? Especially as the reward for a correct guess are so low when compared with the probable odds that the game is fixed. Classical terms, highly statistical significant, meaning unlikely, events, should make one's question should make one question one's model assumptions. In Bayesian statistics, this can be modeled by using a prior distribution, distribution for one's assumptions on the fairness of the coin. Then Bayesian inference to update this distribution. Second example given is the job interview. A man considers going to a job interview. The interviewee has already learned statistics and utility theory in college and performed well in exams. Considering whether to take the interview, he tries to calculate the probability he will get the job versus the cost of the time spent. The young job seeker here forgets that real life has more variables than the small set he has chosen to estimate. Even with a low probability of success, a really good job may be worth the effort taking the interview. Will he enjoy the process of the interview? Will his interview technique improve regardless of whether he gets the job or not? What strategic value might he win or lose in the process? Even the statistics of the job business are nonlinear. What other jobs could, could, could the man's come his way by meeting the interviewer? Might there be a possibility of a very high payoff in the company that he has not thought of? And finally, the third example that's brought down, stock returns. Any decision theory based on a fixed universe or model of possible outcomes ignores and minimizes the impact of events which are, quote-unquote, outside model. For instance, a simple model of daily stock market returns may include extreme moves such as Black Monday's 19, in, in Black Monday in 1987, but might not model the market breakdowns following the September 11 attacks. A fixed model considers the quote-unquote known unknowns, but ignores the quote-unquote unknown unknowns. So let's examine now Black Swan theory when we come back from a short break. Dependability and experience guaranteed. That's DEG Financial. Daniel E. Goodman, an investment advisor representative for DEG Advisory, a registered investment advisor, has been a leading force in the creation and protection of capital for business owners, professionals, and highly paid executives in Southern California for the past 21 years. Specializing in indexed annuities, the mission at DEG is to continuously provide that extra difference in helping you as a client. Call 818-907-0673. That's 818-907-0673. You got it. That's DEG. Dependability and experience guaranteed. We're back. Daniel Goodman here on Case Ball 1510 AM. We're talking about black swan theory today. 
The event most commonly considered a black swan is the September 11, 2001 attacks. This term refers to the unexpected nature and unpredictability of the sudden observance of black swans that coincided excuse me, with the sudden discovery of Australia. Let me go back and, 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 and uh, read to you from the, uh, this is actually from gleaned from an entry because black swan theory is still evolving. So we have the, the, the one definition, the event most commonly considered a black swan is the September 11, 2001 attacks. The term refers to the unexpected nature and unpredictability of the sudden observance, observance of black swans that coincided with the discovery of Australia. Previously, the commonly held belief was that all swans were white in color. So what you have is a suggested revision now that, that defines it as follows. An event often referred to as, quote unquote, black swan is the September 11, 2001 attacks. The term black swan comes from the ancient Western conception that all swans were white in color. In that context, a black swan was a metaphor for something that could not exist. The 17th century discovery of black swans in Australia metamorphosed the term to connote that the perceived impossibility actually came to pass. If you happen to Google black swan theory and, and read through all, it's a very lengthy uh, uh, discussion that's evolving all the time, you get to the point where black swans aren't hard to predict. They cannot be predicted. What can be predicted, according to one of the entries, are gray swans which are hard to predict. In other words, the gist of the argument there was that the 9-11, the, the there was precedence in, in the terms of the failed attack that happened back in 1993 on the World Trade Center, which should have given some indication that this possibility could or should have been possible to predict. Getting a little bit off track here, but the idea is simple. We want to employ and embrace latest technology to help us better understand possibilities and probabilities, but not lose sight of the big picture, which invariably is the human connection. So really what we're talking about here today on keeping things simple are things that are not so simple, but that help us better understand financial issues. I want to take a look for a moment at an example of numbers, probability, statistics related relative to social security things to consider when to take benefits you look at the uh, how monthly benefits can increase if you postpone when you begin receiving your social security benefits if you start for example at age 62 that's when you get the minimum benefit but if you wait till age 66 for example you're going to have an increase of at least one-third more if you wait all the way to age 70, at least three-quarters more. The spousal and survivor benefits, spouse, spousal benefits, the lower-earning spouse is entitled to 50% of their spouse's primary insured amount upon filing. This amount is reduced by the lower-earned earner's individual benefits and or collection of spousal benefits prior to full retirement age. When it comes to survivor benefits, widows are guaranteed at least 71 and a half percent of their deceased spouse's full retirement age benefit if they claim the survivor benefit before their full retirement age, and at least 82.5% if they claim the survivor benefit after their full retirement age. Folks, these are things that, that can be actually calculated. So if you're in that age where 
you're still contemplating what to do, it's well worth the while to take the time, make that phone call to your financial advisor and crunch the numbers. This all relates to the issue of probability, possibilities, but here it's there aren't so many unknown variables. I have just a minute or two left. I want to give you an excerpt from a really interesting interview that appears in this month's May, Mag- May magazine, uh, May, May edition of Financial Advisor magazine. Interview with uh, the legendary Nick Murray. And the question that is asked is by uh, Evan Simonoff. He says to him, when we touched base last year, you were very positive on equities for this decade. Are you still? And I'm just going to read to you Murray's answer to this question and the follow-up question. And he says like this, I don't see how one cannot be. Jeremy Siegel surveyed all the 10-year periods since 1871 and found that equities averaged a net real return after inflation of 6.66%. He found 14 10-year periods of negative return, including this one. In the decade following every single one of the previous 13 negative episodes, real returns exceeded 10%. Half, again, the long-term average, and about twice the average return during those subsequent decades of uh, of government bonds. Non-financial American corporations are the most liquid they've been since the early 1950s. The American worker is more productive than he's ever been, period. And at 11.50, the S&P is selling for a tad less than 15 times the current consensus, consensus 2009 earnings estimates of about $78, which keeps getting raised and probably isn't done yet. These facts combined with aforementioned wall of worry make my heart sing. So if Nick Murray is, is, is optimistic, uh, there's reason for all of us to be.